Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. I'm so psyched to have the conversation that we're about to have today, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. My guest today has owned and operated and represented traditional healthcare companies for over 20 years. He's now applying that experience to helping people find relief through medical cannabis and CBD. He is the CEO of Doc MJ, the chairman and founder of Floridians for Safe Medical Cannabis Care, and an attorney by trade. Aaron Bloom, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today, sir. Hey, Montel, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your background. Where are you originally from? I'm from Tampa, Florida, originally. Spent okay. some time uh, living in New York City as well and enjoyed that. Um, yeah, so I've been around. Where'd you go to school? And Okay, yeah. so I, gradu- I graduated college in Florida from the University of South Florida. I okay. went to uh, law school at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then I was uh, actually a criminal prosecutor on Long Island in New York for three years and um, handled a lot of drug cases there, which uh, um, was an interesting view of the world and, and how drugs were handled um, in, the, in the late 90s. And you probably prosecuted a lot of uh, uh, several marijuana cases, right? We did, but interesting, interestingly enough, it was pretty easy to dismiss those cases. Even, even back then, they would arrest people for it, but it wasn't really treated like a, a serious crime for the most part. That's pretty interesting because around the rest of the country right now, even in states that have medical or or adult uses laws that have passed, they are still arresting people for possession of marijuana. Yeah, it was it was usually uh, uh, they would arrest them if there was something else going on, and it was an excuse that they wanted to arrest them. But what was interesting is, you know, clearly the the people who came in who were drunk had committed far worse crimes and had done much more violence and domestic violence. And just, it was so much, um, much of an impact on society than cannabis. Even back then we were looking at ourselves saying, you know, what are we, what are we doing with people with, with marijuana where, where alcohol is creating so many more um, problems than marijuana. But I mean, I guess, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a little jaded because I just believe that this was just a continuation, not on the war on drugs, but the war on people of color. So it was an excuse that gives, you know, municipalities around the country to continue to incarcerate people of color, making sure they can feed into this industrial, commercial, you know, prison system that we have. And you don't have to. to no, I, I'd like to. I, I agree with that. And one of my one of my early introductions was I was in Suffolk County, um, Long Island, New York, all out in eastern Long Island. And somebody said to us, you know, this county has two percent people of color, but ninety five percent people in prison are of color. What's going on here? And it was very clear to me even back then that there was an injustice in the justice system. So I'm, I agree with you 100%. Sure, absolutely. And I think that's probably, you know, I, I, I am one of those that, um, not to get off track, but, you know, I'm one of those who believes that that's part of the reason that why this has not changed at the national level, because there's such a lobby going on uh, that understands that, you know, if you, you know, decriminalize or lessen the severity of prison terms for people of color who, are arrested for cannabis, then some of this industrial complex is going to fall apart. And uh, there are those that want to make sure they maintain the status quo. You know, um, it, it blows my mind right now that we are at the point where we're, you know, it is 37 states plus the District of Columbia have a cannabis law and provision on their books of some sort, whether it be medical or um, uh, adult use. Yet in some of the states, I, I just did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with someone I think it was in Illinois who was saying that 
you know, you can walk out of a medical facility, drive three blocks, and now you're in a different little fiefdom or a different little municipality, and the police will arrest you for having the cannabis that you just bought legally four blocks away. No, it's 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 a fascinating when you, when you step back and look at the country as a whole, the way the the same product and the same THC is treated differently when you step over those state lines uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I agree with you. Sure. And within some of the states, it's not even stepping across the state line. It's stepping from you know one county to another county or from a city inside of a state to another city. You know, the police in this other little jurisdiction says, no, nope, we didn't authorize that here and we don't have any dispensaries. So therefore, you're breaking the law. It's like, what? I, I just, I, it, it baffles, it blows my mind. And I, but now you went from being in criminal justice to working in healthcare. How did you transition? Well, I worked for, I worked in criminal justice for three years and had enough of that. It was really a, a disheartening revolving door kind of um, system. Came, moved back down to Florida and ended up being a healthcare attorney. And I ended up owning and operating healthcare facilities, primarily nursing homes and assisted living facilities. And so that's how I got into healthcare and, and got interested in the way our healthcare system works. And that sort of led me to, to the cannabis world. The, the nursing home systems are their healthcare and they're important and, and they do important work, but they're not really helping people. It's really where, you know, where you end up at, at end of life. And, and if done right, it's dying with dignity. And, but then in, in, in the cannabis world, I just found, you know, so much joy and so much reward in helping people where you really just made people's lives better. It was just so heartening and so rewarding. It was just something I was drawn to. You know, it's very interesting that you say you were in the nursing care uh, uh, world. I literally spent some time in Israel back in 2000, I think it was 2011. Uh, went over, I actually sat down with Dr. Mishulam before he passed it, of course, uh, in his laboratory in Haifa and had many conversations with him. He introduced me to several of the kibbutzes around the country that back then they looked at cannabis as a geriatric drug and literally provided cannabis to lots of the nursing homes because they found that, especially with some of the patients who suffer from extreme dementia or some other illnesses, and uh, that it really worked in helping them calm down, helping them eat, have an appetite. This was like, you know, what is this, 13 years ago? Yeah. And, and without the side effects, because so many of the medications that we, we treat the typical diseases of aging with in the elderly have terrible side effects that, that really impact the quality of life for seniors. So it really would be a great thing. Unfortunately, in this country, because it's federally legal and, and many nursing homes are funded by Medicare and Medicaid, it's a real challenge to, to get these this product and this medicine uh, to, the, to the seniors that could use it. Yeah, which I think is just, again, it's just an abomination in the fact that you know, we can't seem to get any movement at the federal level to understand. And I think we're going to have to wait until, you know, certain individuals die off before we can make any headway. Did you have any experience with cannabis before you transitioned from the legal system over to the medical? I mean, I'm not trying to, to blow you up or anything, but did you have any, any experience with cannabis as a young person or along the way in life? Very little, very little, honestly. It, it, you know, in college, certainly there were people around me who, who did it and sold it and, and used it. But personally, no, it wasn't something that I ever took to or, or, or helped me personally. Um, so, no, it wasn't part of my um, part of my growing up experience. But when I saw the way it changed people's lives so dramatically, I was just just drawn to it. Like, this is real health care. And when, and when was that? I mean, give me that aha moment. When did you figure this out? Uh, when it became um, constitutionally legal in the state of Florida where I was, I was um, working next to one of the first dispensaries 
in in Florida that opened up. And when we first started doing it, or they first started doing it, it was primarily for children with seizures. Mm-hmm. And you would you would have we called them bud tenders at the time, and they would come back at the end of the day just in tears, telling you the stories that the that the parents would tell you about how it changed their children's lives, and they weren't having seizures anymore. And then they were there was a shortage; they they didn't have enough product, and and to watch the parents just just cry and so upset that they couldn't purchase the product because there was a shortage at that time. We couldn't keep up with demand. It just, it just hit home that, that how desperate these parents were to help their children and how upset they were when they couldn't access this medication that I thought, wow, there's, there's really, really something to this. And then just, you know, continuing to dig into it and just see all of the positives and all of the, the, the firsthand stories about how it just relieved people's pain and just changed their lives. And, and most people have tried everything else. It's sort of a, a, for most people, a drug of last resort. So people are desperate in when they, they stumble across this one way or the other, and you can see that transformation. It's just, a, it's just amazing. It is amazing. And, and again, uh, just a comment, a little, little national commentary is the fact that, you know, I, I don't know when Florida actually passed, when did Florida actually pass its law? So it, so it, it passed, um, the medical statute we have now passed by referendum in November of 2016. 16. And, and then but with what I find so egregiously offensive is the fact that, you know, we now know and we've known since it happened. But, you know, the federal government gave itself a patent back in 2002 that it applied for in 1999 after having spent money in places like Israel and other places researching cannabis for almost 15 years. The federal government gave itself its own patent in 2002, understanding that. If you read the abstract to that patent, it says clearly that the government knew that CBD had potential for everything from ischemic stroke to other neurological diseases, neurological protection. It, it states unequivocally what the government found out through its own research that we funded. And at that time, back in 2002, I remember NIDA, I believe, gave Dr. Mishulam one of its highest awards. This is the office that actually is against drug, you know, that forms regulations against drugs, and they gave Mishulam one of their top awards for all the research he had done, identifying the endocannabinoid system, identifying the active ingredient of cannabis, not only THC, but CBD, then also identifying the fact that there were probably a couple hundred more uh, useful cannabinoids. Yet it took then 14 years for like states like Florida and others to come aboard and say, this is a claim, never, ever, ever referencing the fact that the federal government already said that it was such a good efficacious drug. Yeah. And there, and what's amazing is we're still not tapping all the potential of, of this drug and of this plant. And there are so many states that are still going, yeah, we're not really sure whether there's any benefit or whether it will be safe or how we can roll out a program where you know, when we first started doing it in Florida, we met with some people in California and they just laughed at us. You know, the kind of questions that you ask and people were asking about the dangers and what about, you know, kids and what about, you know, people driving high. And they're like, look, we've been doing this since the 90s in California. We know what's going to happen. And and so it's just it's it's amazing that you have to continuously prove the value in the in the safety of it over and over to people when the evidence is there and has been there, as you point out, for decades. And and what's even more profoundly egregious, I think, is the fact that even in the last three years, you know, I think we are up to now 30,000. I've had one doctor tell me it's more than that, but I'm going to go with the numbers that I think are I can, I can prove. There are over 35,000 30, peer-reviewed 
published documents out about the efficaciousness of cannabis around the world. There's more published documentation on cannabis than there is on aspirin. Yet we still act like, oh, well, we started to figure out whether or not this really works. It blows my mind. Well, well not, only, not only on that side of, of what are the benefits, but, but from my perspective as an attorney, I handle a lot of medical malpractice cases. What are the risks? And, and what I always ask people is, when's the last time somebody got harmed with, with cannabis? When's the last time a doctor got sued because of cannabis? And, and it really just doesn't, doesn't happen. It's such a safe drug. And, and just the fact that people have been growing their own and, and doing it off market uh, for so long with so little negative consequences says to you, this is a safe, safe product. I mean, you know, it, it, not only that, but I mean, just look at the history of cannabis and look at the history of it worldwide. I mean, it's been one of the, the most valuable plants in history. Uh, you know, you can go back to the Napoleonic War was really fought over cannabis. People don't know that. You know, they, they, they believe that, oh, because they were trying to get rid of this crazy leader. No, 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 no. Uh, Napoleon was ticked that, that Russia was, you know, actually making a deal with the United States to continue you know, cannabis trade. So that's what really, you know, prompted Napoleon into going into war. And so, I mean, we look at the United States of America, you know, go back to, you know, the late 1600s, early 1700s, you could pay your taxes in America with hemp and cannabis. And all our forefathers sat around, they smoked it, you know, they did. It's like a, it's, it's such a lie to even imagine that they didn't. Times were tough back then. You needed something other than alcohol to feel a little bit better. And people were, that's how they dealt with, you know, the fact that there were no beds, no air conditioning, no heat. So it's crazy. And then we look at the way cannabis literally was the truest, you know, I don't know what you call it, bummer, uh, 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 crop that America grew. We think that America was built on t- tobacco. It wasn't. It was built on the back of hemp. Hemp is the reason why we have everything from canvas to can to to sails and ropes and clothing and bedding. And, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. Yet we have to turn around and re-educate every other month. Those who just want to say it's the double week, because if we don't utilize this, we got to stop arresting black people. I mean, I, 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 it, it just pisses me off a little bit. No, I mean, it, it is, it, it, it's a fascinating history of, of where it started and, and how it got to where we are today. And, and like you said, even today, how it's, how it's abused and how people don't understand the benefits. It's really a fascinating look at, at how it's evolved. I agree with you 100%. Absolutely. So now tell me a little bit that, so when you transition and you've realized that this was, a, a, you know, a good efficacious, you know, product to be used medically, is that what prompted you to start DocMJ? And tell me what DocMJ is so everybody understands. Sure. So DocMJ is a medical marijuana physician practice. So we have the practice where you come to us to get the recommendation of the prescription so that you're now eligible for your card in your state. And what happened in Florida, the dispensaries got licenses and the dispensaries were, were getting ready to start selling. But in Florida, because we're a medical state, you needed doctors who would be willing to write the recommendation so patients, eligible patients, could get their card and walk into the dispensary and, and purchase legally. Doctors um, are cautious and doctors were unfamiliar. They don't learn about the endocannabinoid system. They don't learn about um, the different strains and, and how it works. So many doctors were very cautious and I ended up counseling them and talking to them as a, as a healthcare regulatory attorney because they had the concerns that everybody has. Am I going to lose my license? Am I going to get prosecuted? Am I going to lose my DEA license? And they had very reasonable um, concerns about, about protecting themselves. So the more I dealt with them and the more I dug into it and educated myself, I was able to give them counsel 
on how they could do it um, legally and safely and protect them. And that's really where DocMJ was born to support doctors in their practice. Now, is DocMJ available in all the states that have a medical marijuana program or uh, adult use program? Yeah. So we're in we're in seven states right now. Okay. Um, in the U.S. Yep. Okay. All right. And uh, so people could reach out to you in those seven states. You want to throw out some digits real quick, so in case people who are listening and understand where to reach out. Sure. Uh, the best way to find us is on the web at www.docmj.com. Okay. All right. All right. And I want people to make sure they, they reach out and do that. What is the process for getting your medical card, let's say, in the state of Florida? Is it, is it different than every state? Most It is different in every state. Every state has different qualifying conditions and a different process. In Florida, we do require an in-person visit your first time. So you have to find a doctor near you. We have 30 locations, 30 offices throughout Florida. You, you find the doctor, make an appointment. We require uh, medical records or something to establish that you have the qualifying medical condition, whether it's records or medicines or some kind of clear history um, to show that you have a qualifying condition and some of our doctors will, will diagnose you. You go in, you meet with the doctor, the doctor discusses your, your qualifying condition, make sure that cannabis is right for you, discusses the pros, the cons, if there are any, um, and then they put you on the registry. After that, you go to the state of Florida and register with the state, uh, pay for your card, and you'll get a you'll get a card in the mail or, or get electronically get your card, and then you could take it to any of the available dispensaries and, and purchase your products. Do you anticipate? You know, I know everybody's like looking at Florida, but do you anticipate in Florida, Florida uh, turning into a adult use state anytime soon? So that's a it's a great question, and it's a it's a big question in Florida. There is a movement. There is a constitutional referendum that is on the ballot. Um, they've re, they've acquired enough signatures to get on the ballot. It is now being reviewed by the Florida Supreme Court. So the Florida Supreme Court has to review it and make sure that it follows all of the laws and they will say yes or no. They, the Supreme Court has turned down the last two um, rec um, ballot initiatives. So we'll see what they do with this one. If the Supreme Court allows this one to go forward, it will appear on the November 2024 presidential election ballot and it'll have to get a 60% approval of the voters on that day uh, to pass. And that's, that's where we are with, with rec in Florida. Well, and what, what was the reason why they turned it down before? Do you know? Yeah, sure. So in Florida, when you um, propose a constitutional amendment, you have to put together a ballot summary. That's the summary of what it does that goes on the actual ballot that people read. The requirements the Supreme Court checks are two things. One, to make sure that the ballot summary is not misleading, meaning that the summary says exactly what the amendment will do. And two, it has to be a single subject. So you can't do more than one thing with each amendment. The last two have gotten tripped up for being um, um, confusing. What they say is that this amendment would will make cannabis legal for adults, where in the courts have found that that's misleading because it is still a federal crime. So you would, you're telling people if you vote for this amendment, um, uh, cannabis will be legal in Florida, where in fact it will be legal under Florida law, you would still be creating or committing a federal crime. Then so, they have to specifically say that in their writing. You're still committing Correct. a federal law crime. Gotcha. Gotcha. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And each one of the previous amendments literally left that out in a way, right? Right. And so now this this last one, third one, has been crafted very carefully to try to comply with what they learned from the last two. Uh, the attorney general in the state of Florida has, is opposing it and is still claiming that it's misleading and that it, it's got some issues. So it's still a hotly contested issue in the Florida Supreme Court. 
Really? And even though the sky hasn't fallen because of the medical program, they think it's going to fall if you do adult use. Well, there, there are still a lot of people, um, uh, unfortunately, who have, you know, um, beliefs uh, that cannabis is not a good thing. And there are lots of powers that be in Florida who don't necessarily want it on the, the next uh, presidential ballot. Wow. Wow. And yet, I will bet you that whoever ends up being the nominee for both parties or three parties, every one of them is going to lie like they did before last election and say, we're going to change the laws and it involves cannabis once I get elected in the first hundred days. Yeah, right. Right. Are you, are you trying to say that they might um, claim they're going to do something that they don't actually do? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that's something that's the norm. But, you know, it, it blows my mind, though, that... Uh, you know, uh, people fell into this trap of thinking that, you know, this current administration, even though they make claims before they, uh, the, the election that they were going to do something in the first 100 days, they haven't done anything. And now they're holding on to these little fragments of statements that come out every once in a blue moon about, yes, we're going to try to consider, you know, deep rescheduling. And, and just on that note, what do you think would be best? Rescheduling, descheduling, what? So it's, it's an interesting question. I think descheduling would clearly be best. Um, rescheduling, I think, opens up a whole nother host of issues. Whole nother host of issues. Yeah. So I think rescheduling, people don't understand that, that now all of a sudden the federal government's going to be involved in regulating it. And, and right. you know, I don't, I don't know a whole lot of things that the federal government regulates that makes things better. So you would you would add another layer of of complexity, another layer of of regulations. And my doctors have come to me and said, "Hey, should I you know maintain my DEA license? If the government's going to regulate it, do I need to be able to prescribe under federal law?" And the answer is yes. You probably you probably will need to if they if they start regulating it. So um, I think I think descheduling opens up as many challenges as it as it helps. I, I would agree with you because I think descheduling then allows the government to define what cannabis is. And so therefore you got to figure out whether or not you can have 2%, 5%, 7%, 12%, whatever. They're going to start throwing out, you know, arbitrary rules on uh, what con con constitutes true cannabis. And that's where some of the bigger mistakes will come in. And, and, what, and what happens when the, the, the federal regs now conflict with all of the different 38 state regs? Now what happens? Right, 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 right. And, and that's what's going on now. But it's and the state regs are we did I happen to be involved in Massachusetts and also I literally am involved in Georgia with one of the you know, Georgia will be the first state to allow independent pharmacists to distribute yeah. cannabis. So I'm gonna have one of my my products will be the first products in the country distributed in independent pharmacy situations rather than just in dispensaries. So we're in Georgia. Um, we, we were, I was with you actually in one of the, one of the openings there in Georgia. Oh, cool. Um, and it's a, it, that independent pharmacy is great. I mean, it's just a great way to, to get access to the people in a very efficient way. So I think that's a fantastic step that Georgia's taking. I, I happen to be, I, I'm, you know, you know that I'm affiliated with uh, botanical sciences and I'm going to go down again in the middle of next month to help open their facility in uh, outside of Atlanta. I think they've got one of the main uh, or one of only two of the dispensary licenses in around Atlanta. So I'm going to go down for that. I'm looking forward to it. And, and I, I think that is a model that they've put together that, you know, uh, even though it's, it has no smoking and no vaping and no edibles, it's kind of, I think they really missed the boat right there a little bit. However, um, at least the product will be available across the state. 
Yeah, and I think that's sort of what I was alluding to. Every state goes through an evolution. Every state starts and is it very slowly and dip their toe and we're worried. And then when they realize, like you said, the, skull, the, the sky doesn't fall when we have low THC and then all of a sudden you can, they start expanding and realizing the benefits to the citizens, uh, it snowballs and they'll open it up. Yeah, you joined a DOC or Doc MJ back in 2018. How has the acceptance of medical cannabis been within the physician community um, across the state over the last five years? So it's changed. In the beginning, nobody wanted to talk to us. In the beginning, we had trouble recruiting doctors to come to work for us. Um, nobody really wanted to do it. Um, now we turn away doctors. We have more doctors than we, we could possibly ever need. Um, so it, it's changed. I mean, what we find is once people know somebody who's done it and, and been successful, and it's somebody that they know and respect, one of their colleagues or neighbors, uh, it changes the attitude. So a lot of doctors, even though they're, they're people of science, they'll come to you and say, you know, I wasn't really a big fan, but one of my patients came and talked about, you know, how great it is, or my neighbor gets relief or, or my spouse, my significant other. And when it's, when it's personal, when you know somebody who's benefiting from it and you see it firsthand and hear those stories. And so now we're, we're well over 800,000 people in Florida on the registry. So everybody knows somebody who's benefiting from it or, you know, using it to help them sleep or for their anxiety. And so now the acceptance is much better um, than it was in the beginning. And, you know, I mean, when you, ju you just said that using it to help them sleep or for the anxiety, we can we consider that a medical issue. But in some of the states that are, you know, uh, adult use, I'm going to say that the majority of people who come to the table and make a choice between cannabis and alcohol, almost all of them are coming to the table for a medical reason. If you tell me that I use cannabis because when I get home from work, I want to be able to relieve my anxiety and rest a little bit, that's medical. If you tell me I need cannabis because I come home and I can't go to sleep, that's medical. You, you know, uh, uh, so, and even if you bind it rec adult use-wise, that's still a medical reason behind even gravitating towards cannabis versus any other kind of uh, medication. No, and it, it helps in so many different ways. So many people find relief and, and you do find that people are self-medicating with alcohol to, to relax, to help them sleep. And this is, you know, a much better alternative than, than two glasses of wine or, or, or a couple of beers at night. And so it's, it really is about better health and wellness and treating your symptoms and, and just improving your life. So, I mean, do you feel, and this is something I've been kind of on a, a tirade about in the last couple of years, I think one thing that this industry, the can medical cannabis industry and the adult use cannabis industry has done themselves a disservice because we have not done what is our responsibility in trying to educate the consumer as much as we should be. We do a great job B2B. There are conferences all over the country, you know, how to get started. You want know, to buy this machine, buy that machine. Da, 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 da. Goes on and on and on and on for days. But how often do we actually sit down and talk about the first, give a CME to doctors out there who don't even know about the endocannabinoid system. They're still, I, I'm shocked when I speak places and there are doctors who say, what are you talking about with this endocannabinoid system? I, I look at them like, what are you, or how did you get a license? Or, you know, I mean, because I just don't understand it. with now, we've got places like George Washington University, places, Harvard, other places around the country that are now teaching this and teaching uh, uh, courses about um, the endocannabinoid system and the efficaciousness of cannabis. Mm -hmm. It surprises me that there are so still to the day, there are so few doctors who know that. Absolutely. I mean, most doctors don't unless they've, they've stopped and, and worked hard on their own 
to learn. Education of the public is, is job number one. I, I couldn't agree with you, couldn't agree with you more. I also think they do a disservice with some of the names and some of the, the marketing and positioning. Um, you know, if you want to be rec, that's fine, be rec. But if you want to be medical, you have to treat it like a medicine and, and position it like a medicine. I, I, I could not agree with you more about that. I, I, you know, I speak all over the country on cannabis and I, I, on every one of my speeches, I always talk about the fact that knock off the silly with these stupid names. I just do not understand why we think we've got to come up with another, you know, more ignorant way to express what this product does. It's a plant. Let's talk about it. We, we, you don't see tamoxifen being called, you know, juju, juju, juice. You know, it's like stop yeah. with the silly. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. And it's impossible to compare. It's impossible to compare um, from one dispensary to the other when, when you don't really know, you know, what it is. And we also do know that for a fact that, you know, because of the nature of the plant itself, and this is going to be one of the reasons why I don't think it's ever really going to be completely pharmaceuticalized, you know, like the same way they attempted to, to pharmaceuticalize Marinol. You know, first off, they just went after synth synthesizing one component one cannabinoid thinking that that's what makes yeah. the difference. And it doesn't, and I've taken Marinol. It's the most, it's, it's the craziest, weirdest drug that uh, probably one of the least prescribed drugs in America today, because its effects are so ridiculously bad. Um, you know, I, I was traveling overseas and, you know, I've been a cannabis user now for over 20 years or 22 years. And, um, I've been in this, this, this advocacy and business of this for over 22 years now. And, Way back, I think it was maybe 2002. I had I was going to go to Europe uh, to for my show, and um, you know I said, hmm, you know I don't really want to go that long without taking any cannabis because you know I believe also in the cumulative effect of having yourself and your your endocannabinoid system being basically saturated. And so you know, and at that time I wasn't really. I should have done much more research on Marinol than I did because I thought that it was you know, a, a full spectrum or a broad spectrum, but then I realized that it was nothing more than just a synthesized version of Delta 9. And um, I remember getting off a plane in Europe, popping one of those things and like almost wigging the heck out <laughs> because I was like, what the devil's going on inside of my head? It was the strangest uh, experience I had through them all the way. And it was a very expensive drug. Yeah, no, it's un it's unfortunate when things like that happen because there's so much potential with this plant that that we that we just haven't tapped and we haven't you know appropriately um, we're not we're not totally using it, but it's there's so much potential that it's just it's just a shame that we're not we're not using its fullest. Absolutely, and I've been one of these people that, that long before anybody was even thinking about CBD back in 2001, I was actually seeking out CBD heavily CBD laden flower. Uh, from, uh, you know, the Humboldt County area. As a matter of fact, I even ran into a, a grower up there who said, oh, we don't like that. You want it? I give it to you. So I basically was getting a lot of what I was using back then pretty much free because people were trying to get rid of it. And then now as we move forward, you know, I've been working in formulations with my own product, which is a product that's called Inspire Um I've been one of the only, I started off, this is like almost really 10 years ago, 11 years ago, actually, speaking all over the country about, you know, the efficaciousness of terpenes and using some of the flavonoids and making sure that we put this together and also using some of the other minor cannabinoids, which we're now starting to recognize. Finally, people are starting to come to the table and agree that there are greater benefits when you actually 
take a broad spectrum or a full spectrum and then enhance it a little bit with some of the other monocannabinoids, increase what they would not, not naturally be, but increase them, you can get a, a, to a point where you can actually, you know, hit some marks that we have not been many, hitting with it. And, and to your point about education, th this conversation and the terpene discussion is something that most doctors and, and almost every politician I've spoken to never even heard of. They, right. they, they don't understand it. They don't understand the potential. They don't understand the science. And, and that, is, that, is a, that is a shame. And that is one of the reasons I think that we're so far behind that this is just, this is information that just is not readily available or talked about. And it's too bad because as you talk about, there's so many benefits. And, you know, the, but the information is there. You can find it. I mean, yeah. if you could disclose, that's one great thing about the internet. It has everything in it. So if you just you know, dig a little deep, dig, dig one step deep. You can start finding out information that will blow your mind. So, you know, I have formulations I'm in the marketplace in Boston or in uh, Massachusetts right now with uh, formulations that I've been actually doing myself for seven, eight years. And for the last six years, I've made them available in various places around the country where I'm using combinations of the major cannabinoids along with some minor cannabinoids. I have, you know, four formulations out in uh, the mass area right now where I have, you know, a, a 90 or nine to one THC to CBD. I have a 50-50. I have a THC CBD CBG formulation uh, and a THC CBN CBC CBD formulation, all of which have their own particular terpene profile that goes on top of that. And I think synergistically, those things all work together. I put them together to elicit responses and they seem to work. Um, you know, I've had people, I'm selling out in lots of the dispensaries that I'm in up in Mass. And hopefully as soon as we can get the products now up and running in Georgia, even though Georgia again has this non-edible, but they allow for tinctures. Hmm. How do you, how do you process the tincture if it's not edible? I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, and we also have pills. Oh, that's, no, that's not, pill is that edible? Yeah, come on. Um, but hopefully, you know, uh, you know, I'm working with um, Dr. Fowler there and, you know, Dr. Fowler and, you know, Dr. Fowler has got the ear of uh, the legislature. And I think over the next couple of years, we'll tweak what's available there a little bit more and more. It's it's also the only medicine that is so specifically regulated by the legislature. When you right. go, when you go to an oncologist, when you go to your primary care doctor, there's no legislature telling them how many milligrams of penicillin to give you or, or, or how to how to dose chemotherapy. Like that's not something the legislature involves. Where with this drug, why are legis you know why are we legislating medicine? It's it's. Just I, I I could not agree with you even more. You know it's really really very funny. I um. I happen to be a parent of a cancer surviving child who, um, you know, had, had a lymphoma and she had it um, in a really, really virulent way. She got it once and it, it was cured, they claim, and then it came back and they hit her with some chemo that I literally, I asked the doctor, I said, how can you tell, first off, I told the doctor, when my daughter leaves out of here, I'm definitely getting her on some higher CBD. And he was like, well, I don't want to know about that. Don't say it. Don't say anything else. I was like, dude, what do you mean? Don't say anything. You're going to put my daughter on a medication that's going to make all of her skin on her body fall off. And you're worried about a little CBD? Oh, come on. Really? It was, it was just, I, I just, I, I, I can't believe that we allow some of the medications that we allow thinking that just because somebody made it in a laboratory, it's going to be better for you than what 
you know, if we believe in science and we believe in who we claim to be one of the smartest people in the world, for every action is an equal and opposite reaction. So for every disease on this planet, there is something on this planet that was probably here as a cure. If we haven't destroyed it already, cannabis could be part of that. Yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a tragedy. And unfortunately, your daughter, you know, had somebody like you who could advocate for her and took the time to, to educate themselves. And obviously, you've been a you've been a strong advocate for, for many years now. Um, but unfortunately, there, there are too many people that don't. And so that's why the education is, is so important and that we continue to talk to patients and doctors and to legislatures. Absolutely. We got to. So like, tell me a little bit about your PAC, Floridians for Safe Medical Cannabis Care. Yeah. So um, a couple of years ago, probably three years ago, I got together with some of my competitors, you know, like-minded people in the, in the space and, and doctors around, around Florida and, you know, addressing some of the same issues that, that you're talking about now, the legislatures just don't understand the medicine. They don't understand what's going on. And there was a lot of bills introduced that just didn't make any sense. There were bills like trying to protect children. And, you know, we thought, what, what harm are you trying to, to, what, what, what do you, what problem are you trying to solve? They just didn't understand. So we thought, let's get together. Let's try to educate them as the physicians. We're not the dispensaries. We're not trying to push the products. We're just talking to you as doctors. And so we, we lobby every year and we go up and really it's, it's education. It's talking about these kind of things and explaining to them all the benefits uh, that this program is having and, and, and trying to advocate for things that we, we think will make the program better, um, better for patients. And, and how is that being accepted? I mean, you're looking at, you know, right now we're, we're getting ready to go into the, I think what will be the next five-year phase of cannabis. Um, but do you, do you think we have to just wait till some of these deeply entrenched naysayers die off or are we making any headway? Um, we're not making a lot of headway. No, I, I, I think there's the, when you talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, they're open and many will readily admit that, that, uh, they know people who, who are using it successfully and they understand the benefits in theory, but there is still a very strong reefer madness, um, anti-cannabis feeling out there in, in some areas of the country and certainly some areas of Florida and the legislatures feel sort of, um, bound by that. And so they can't fully speak their mind and, and vote ways that, that, that they would like to. There's just a strong perception for whatever reason that's still there, still anti, uh, cannabis movement that's, that will just take time. Well, you know, it's really very interesting. I, I, I can think back myself back, you know, 2001, two, three, four, five, six, I literally was working with everybody from DPA to normal to MPP to uh, uh, around the country, testifying, sitting down before legislative groups. It was a constant. I was probably in, in three to four different states every month. And all of that's kind of just shriveled up. It's almost as if our lobbying efforts have gone into trying to figure out how, as a cannabis owner, I get to buy my, own, my first yacht. And um, you know, I, I'm very angry with the industry for this because we really focus so much on how can I make more money for myself and make get a bigger part of the market share than trying to figure out how to move this forward so more people have access. Do you think that um, we're going to see, you know, any changes from the industry stepping up and saying, like you just said, you go once a year for that lobbying effort, but this should be, you know, big farmers in there every week. <laughs> I mean, they're there knocking on doors, tapping on doors and, Making sure you know, stand them up my bailiwick here, stand them up my bailiwick here, and you know our legislators seem to do so when it comes to other pharmaceutical initiatives. Yet we haven't realized that the second we at least learn from who our competitors are and start employing some of their same techniques, we can have the same difference. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's been a really good cohesive message from the cannabis industry. There have been a lot of efforts, a lot of different efforts, but they haven't sort of come together with the full force that I think they should. A lot of competitiveness, a lot of you know competition where we don't want to work together. And there's a lot of the gold rush. People are in it to make a quick buck and get out and, and really aren't in it for, for the right reasons or, or for the long haul. And so uh, there hasn't been a really good solid. I mean, the Safer Banking Act or Safe Banking Act is a good example of both failure to get something passed that everybody sort of agrees should get passed. And the fact that this is going first before justice reform or, or, or anything else is telling, right? Because what is this going to do? It's going to allow banks. It's going to allow you know wealthy lenders um, better access to the market and, and, and access to the market without any risks of, of federal regulators um, coming down on them. So that's that's sort of what what's going first. And I think that just tells you um, where most of the lobbying efforts are today. Right, right. So if you had to put on your crystal ball, what do you think the next four or five years looks like when it comes to cannabis, state of Florida and also national? Yeah, so nationally, um, I don't see a whole lot of movement. I just think it, it, it's it's very complicated and I don't think that it's a priority. There are so many pressing uh, issues on the federal level that are that are vying for attention. And this is not an easy issue. So I don't think we'll see any movement. Maybe they deschedule it. Maybe they don't. Um, but I don't, I don't, I'm not hopeful on the federal level there'll be much movement at all. In Florida, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll know soon whether or not it's going to be on the ballot. And if it is on the ballot, we'll know November of 2024 if it's going to um, pass, which maybe it will, maybe it won't. It's a it's an odd state. I mean, it's, a, it's an odd state because I can tell you, I, I don't think I've been anywhere in the state where I have not walked out somewhere in between buildings and smelled something wafting in the air and go, hmm, really? You know, yeah. and so, I mean, there's a lot of cannabis being used in the state, yeah. but, you know, it's still, everybody feels like they got to be in the underground down low. Yeah, but I, w I wouldn't be surprised if the Supreme Court keeps it off the ballot yet again. So we could be looking at another, you know, two to four years before um, there's adult use in Florida. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. Okay. And as adult use programs expand in more and more states, you know, uh, you really believe though there, and I believe, I agree with you that there should be more, I think, emphasis put on medical programs and keeping them alive, right? No, absolutely. The medical is important for patients, for, for real patients who need guidance and, and need a safe way to, to be guided into this and, and use it. And we've found in states where there's both adult use and medical available. A lot of patients try it first because you can just walk in as a rec patient or an adult use patient and try it, but ultimately come to doctors for guidance and, and some of the economic benefits of, of going through the medical program. So um, in those states where we have both, we've, we've been successful in, in, in getting people on the program, uh, even those who, who uh, try it first as an adult use patient. Wow. And you, know, you, you did make a comment about the Georgia pharmacy distribution model. Um, you think that some of the other states may start grasping that? Uh, unfortunately, once a state gets entrenched and once a once dispensaries invest in in building building physical locations, I don't know who would push for that. You, you know who would who would advocate for that? Once you've got a, a corner on the market because you've got the best physical location, I think it's hard to do it. The, the good thing about Georgia is they did it early. They they rolled that out early in their program. I'm not sure if if there's the political will in other states with already um, established programs. It might be something that Texas could look at. I mean, they're they're early on in their, in their sort of development of a program. But in a state that already has um, dispensaries out there and in loca locations, um, I would find it hard to believe they'd, they'd roll back that 
that benefit. But I would think that, you know, with the, the lobbying arm of the independent pharmacist, and there's they're a pretty strong group uh, nationally and in individual states. I mean, the original bill that was written for the state of New York, oh, I was part of that helping to write that back. That was like 13 years ago. Um, there was a component back then, 13 years ago, in the first uh, bill that was being passed in New York uh, when they were doing just, they were going to do just medical. That's how they intended to distribute without even allowing for dispensaries. Now, I, I think it's great. I mean, it's it's a safe way to dispense it. It's, it's, it's it, it helps with the, the medical aspect, right? It feels more like medical. You walk into a, into a pharmacy and, and, and get it as opposed to dispensaries, which are, you know, come in all different, co- different kinds of models. Um, I think it's a great model. I mean, it's, it's, it's a way to distribute it to the entire state, you know, very fish, efficiently and, and effectively. Absolutely. You're, you're touching on areas that, that people would buy, would, would skip past for a dispensary because it'd be so small. You know, the independent pharmacist has always been there. He's that, that like the mailman. So people trust him. Yeah. As they should, right. They're, they're legitimate pharmacists or legitimate, you know, um, mm-hmm. people who, who pass medicines for, for a living. So it's a great, it's a great model. Well, you know, no, we do know that, that some of the angst and the lobbying against cannabis has come from uh, the pharmaceutical industry at the same time that they're lobbying against, they also, you know, keeping their fingers crossed that, you know, this gets bigger and let's get in. Do you think big pharma wants to be a participant in this or do you think they just want to stay on the perfume? I can't imagine that they're not looking at it. I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball to tell you what I, where I see that path, what that path is, but I can't imagine that this isn't something that they see a, a role for themselves playing at some point. And, you know, when you look at, I don't know if you're paying, paying much attention to what's going on around the world, but, you know, around the world, you know, I think it's now we're past like 130 countries have already, you know, pulled out of the UN treaty to not trade in hemp and uh, there are countries that are dropping like flies, countries all over the world, Isle of Man, uh, Portugal, Spain, Germany, UK, um, uh, what is it, Chile, um, Uruguay, uh, countries all over the world. China even is growing hemp right now and trying to extract CBD. So, I mean, we could be in a situation there in a little while where you know, the international market's going to be bigger than the market here in the United States. And, and why not? I mean, why, why, why wouldn't they? You know, of all the reasons we've talked about today, it only makes sense that countries are pulling out of that treaty and, and taking full advantage of it, both for their economic benefits and for their citizens. Correct. Yeah, because I, we do know, I know in Israel, they will talk about it all the time, is that, you know, once they start shifting some of their, or some of the patients are shifting over to cannabis, they start to lessen the need for some of the other pharmaceuticals that they had been taking. So therefore, you know, it lowers importation costs, lowers cost of healthcare. And, you know, um, you know, if you really look at cannabis the right way, I mean, I, I, it's like here in the United States, I, I am I've constantly trying to explain to some um, uh, dispensary owners it, all you have to do is put a camera at the door. And I'm not, don't legally do that, but watch who comes in your door. You know, uh, the industry is still chasing the highest THC level that they can find and make sure they can broadcast that on, you know, the front door. Get such and such skunk and you'll get, you know, 39% THC. And most people don't want that. And, you know, when you start looking at who's coming in door, well, you know, the person who wants that high at the level of THC is buying one pre-roll. 
you know, but you look at the baby boomer walks in the door and they're walking out the door with $200 worth of product every time they come in the door. So if we started understanding that this is, I don't mean geriatric drug, but, you know, probably the best demographic in this country to utilize cannabis would be the baby boomers. And, you know, and, and if we start convincing them, you know, I'm trying to even convince those in, in Georgia that, you know, it's great what we're doing, but unless you get out there and start touching the community, get out there in some of these churches, get out here in some of these civic groups and present and give them an understanding as to why cannabis, you know, you have to reach out to the consumer. The consumer is the one that's going to drive this. Yep. And, and to the advocacy groups that advocate for the, for the conditions that would benefit. So, so go, so go to the, go to the cancer groups and, and, and yeah. just groups and, and, and those in the glaucoma groups and places like that, that would really benefit from it and explain to them why your specific condition, how, how it would benefit your condition. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, for sure. Well, anything else you want to add, sir? Uh, you know, the only, the only thing I'll tell you is, is if you don't mind a quick Montel story. Oh, when, please. I, when I was a, when I was a prosecutor living in New York, one of the things on my bucket list was to attend a taping of a show in, in New oh, York. And in the 90s, I attended a Montel Williams show. My wife and I were in your studio audience. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It was you know, it was very funny. In New York, remember um, in Manhattan, uh, District Attorney Morgenthau? Of course. Yeah, we, you know, um, this is back, uh, this was 2001 when I literally came out because I, I run into an issue in the airport in Detroit that had nothing to do with cannabis itself, but had to do with you know, I had a, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a little funny story. I was, I've been in California for a week attending meetings, doing some things and was flying back to New York and in route the airport, LA, uh, you know, about a quarter mile outside of uh, LAX, there was this really phenomenal glass, uh, blown glass pipe store that had some, and the prices on these things were ridiculous, okay? But I happened to be driving by and I saw it. I went, oh my goodness, let me stop for a second before I got to the airport. And I jumped out of the car and I ran in and I bought a nice piece of glass. It was a really unbelievable piece of glass. It was a pipe, but it was, uh, uh, that was probably plus $400. It was, you know, and really, really nice. It wasn't some big bong thing. It was only about, you know, about as big as my hands here. And I bought it. I had it in the bag. It literally had the price tag still on it. I had the receipt in the bag. I threw, wrapped it up, and I didn't want to put it in my check luggage because I know they'd smash it. So I put it in my carry-on. And I go to the airport, took off, got through LAX, no problem. Got to Detroit because I had a, I did have one of those connecting flights for some reason. I normally didn't like those, but I took the connection. And when I arrived in Detroit, in the terminal I was in, they had just really nasty, really ugly fast food. But in the main terminal, um, you know, they had a couple of sit-down restaurants. So I thought, you know, I got an hour and a half. Let me go through the TSA, go through security, go out, sit down, eat, and I'll come back in and go to my gate and fly out. Well, I went out. I'm coming back in. And when I'm coming back in, of course, I put my bag up on the thing. My bag rolls through. And this little, uh, I, I won't cast any aspersions, but this little TSA woman, you know, says, what's that in your bag? And I went, what are you talking about? And I open up my bag and she pulls out my bag and she takes out the bag. And in the bag, there's my pipe. 
And there's the receipt. It still has a, a sticker on it. She says, what's that? I said, it's a piece of artwork. She says, it looks like a pipe to me. And I was like, um, well, it's a piece of artwork and it has never been used. So it really isn't anything except for a piece of glass because it's never been used. And she went, no, I think it's a pipe. And it looks like one of those marijuana pipes. Literally called the state police on me. I'm like, what? So they made me stand over to the side. And while I'm waiting for the state police officer to come, and unbeknownst to me, Detroit had just passed a paraphernalia law that I wasn't aware of. And a um, uh, uh, state police officer comes walking over and he says, um, well, Mr. Williams, were you in Detroit? I said, no, I've been in the airport, man. I just flew, I'm on a connecting flight. I flew in here, went out to get something to eat and came back in. So he said, did you ever step, did you step out front of the airport? I said, no. So, well, you are on federal property. And so you really aren't governed by this Detroit law. But unfortunately, since they called you, we're going to have to confiscate this. I'm like, what? You're going to confiscate my $400 pipe? Yes. And they literally confiscated my pipe. And um, I had to, and he said, and unfortunately, because it is a state law, I'm going to have to write you a citation. If you want, you can just pay me for the citation right now and go ahead and about your merry way. Well, the citation was for like 190 bucks. So I'm like, dude, I don't have an 90 on me, 190 on me. I have to go to ATM. But you want me to walk over to that ATM, take out money, come back and hand it to you? Is that not going to look weird on these cameras on here? And he said, uh, but that's, uh, that's the only way you're going to be able to get me a flight. So I had to do that. I went over, you know, I took out cash, came back. I handed this police officer like $190 in cash, got my citation, went back, got on the plane. And then the next day, you know, it's reported in the national news. Montel Williams busted marijuana at the airport in Detroit. I wasn't busting no marijuana. I was busting for a stupid pipe. I fought this thing in court. They almost demanded me to come to court back in Detroit. They were trying to get me to come to court. So my lawyers showed up. And um, the case, of course, got thrown out. It got thrown out with prejudice. But they kept my pipe. <laughs> so, I was so pissed that that was crazy. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah, so ridiculous. Yeah. Well, sir, I can't thank you enough for being a part of the show. Anytime you have anything that's humming, coming down the pike and you want to uh, get some uh, word out, please reach back out to us. We'd love to have you back. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. If anything, I, I happen to be a Florida resident also. I'm coming to you from Brickell. So anytime you ever, if you ever need uh, some help or need me, uh, let me know. Oh, absolutely. We'll do that. Appreciate it. Absolutely, sir. For sure. You take care. And you keep tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.